Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. I think it was the summer of 1963, if I remember, uh, I was maybe nine years old, when my family visited Colonial Williamsburg. Now that was, you know, back in the dark ages before there was a Bush Gardens or any kind of mega amusement parks or anything like that. When you went to Williamsburg, you went to Williamsburg, the old town that was still in the process of restoration. A lot of the buildings were actually just, were just archeological digs. You could see where the brick posts had been, where houses had stood, and they would be digging around to see if they found any, any uh, bits of china or glass or, or various uh, archeological mementos, shall we say. And we wandered from house to house of those that, that existed or had been reconstructed, and from shop to shop, as, the, as a few red-coated soldiers drilled on the parade ground and the costumed uh, shopkeepers and curators chatted with tourists like us. Now, my mother loved the crafters, you know, the braided and the hooked rug makers, the needlepoint, the folk-painted tollware, you know, the tinware that has these folk designs on it. She loved that. My sister was fascinated by the weaver's loom and the textiles and the costumes. My brother, well, I hardly need to say, my brother loved the gunmaker's shop. <laughs> he still loves gunmaker shops. Me, I was mesmerized by the hat maker. I don't know if they still have one there. I don't know if he does it the same way. But when I was there, shortly after Noah got off the ark, <laughs> there was this hat maker and his little, his little shop was incredible. He had a work table and above it he had a shelf with these various wooden molds hat-shaped molds from, oh, about doll size or teddy bear size all the way up to a large adult male size. And underneath, sort of tucked up underneath, he had a vat of fresh water. And what he would do, he took a, a small round piece of felt. I, I don't really remember. I, was think, I seem to recall it was six or seven inches in diameter. And he soaked it in the vat to get it good and wet. And then he'd look and he'd pull down the smallest form. And he'd fish out this piece of felt and then he would start with his hands, he'd start stretching it over that form, tugging this way and tugging that way and stretching and stretching and pushing down and, until it formed a hat. It looked like a hat, a flat brim, but, but it, was, it, it looked like a hat. I thought, oh, okay, a toy hat. And then he peeled off the felt, put, the form, put it back in the water, put the form up, 
And you know what he did? He pulled down the next larger form. And then he pulled that felt back out of the water, now that it was softened again, and he started stretching it over that bigger form. And he pulled and pulled and pulled until it was big enough to cover that form. Peeled it off, put it in the water, put the form up, got the next form. Eventually, he had a hat that was big enough for a child. And then he did it again. And he did it again. I don't remember how many times he did it, but by the time he finished, that little piece of felt was an adult man's hat. And all he had to do was then fold up the sides and he had his nice tricorn hat. Now, even as a child, I had this feeling that somehow there was an important lesson for me in that. That I realized some things don't happen quickly. Doesn't necessarily happen easily. And it doesn't always happen in one simple step. But they require that you go at it again and again and again, each time getting closer and closer to your goal in small increments until, almost by surprise, it's finished. And there have been many times in my life that I would indeed have to hammer at my goals over and over and over to get where I was supposed to go. However, as a Christian, I also discovered, later discovered, that sometimes, yes, I might be the hat maker. Sometimes I'm the hat. That God is then, that's when God is the hat maker who delights in making big results out of itty-bitty material. After all, he made everything out of nothing. And I can't think of any more nothing than what he has to work with with me. Now, when I, when I sensed, when, when God was sort of talking to me that he wanted me to come here to KPC, I thought how nice it would be at last to pastor a charismatic congregation. I've spent most of my career pastoring in <laughs> normal Presbyterian churches. <laughs> the, you know, and I was looking at all my charismatic sermons, you know, digging them all out, and I realized every last one of them was designed for a church that didn't want to hear it in the first place, <laughs> you know? So here I'm trying to make it attractive, you know, here, oh, the Spirit, maybe the Spirit wants to do, you know, a little something exciting here, and yeah, everybody would sit there with their arms folded and scowling at me. But I thought, okay, great, I can come to KPC and I get to teach finally on things I couldn't, you know, I mean, 
What preacher can go to your average Presbyterian church? I'll probably get in trouble for saying this now one day, but go to your average Presbyterian church and preach on speaking in tongues, let alone do it. You know, I thought, oh, finally, I get to actually preach on these exciting topics. And then so what happens with this characteristic sense of, of irony, God has been reminding me instead of talking about the gifts or the power or the authority of the Spirit, He's been reminding me what life in the Spirit looks like. So, Apostle Paul, I'm asking, what does it mean to live in the Spirit? We'll get around to the other stuff, I assume, Lord, eventually. But this is where we need to start as believers in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to live in the Spirit? Now, Paul was not a hat maker, but he was a tent maker and leather worker by trade. He undoubtedly had had learned many similar lessons. Let me hold that thought. I want to turn to Galatians. Paul's churches in the province of Galatia had been visited by preachers. Preachers who came in and said, oh boy, it's great that you've come to believe in Christ. It's great that you've been filled with the Spirit. How wonderful, you're halfway there. Now you just need Jesus and the Spirit and something else. Now to be completed Christians, you can get circumcised and be full-blown children of the covenant. Don't pay any attention to that fine print about having to obey all 360 whatever it is commandments of the law. We'll get to that later, you know. So Paul is completely aghast that spirit-filled believers are gonna so quickly abandon the grace of Christ to run after a a, a life of law and works. You know, having to check off doing this and this and this and this and this and and thinking that you're doing what pleases God then. And Paul looks back on the moment that they first experienced, that they first, it first broke over them that new life in the Holy Spirit. And he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? He said, when God gave you his spirit in your hearts, did he work miracles right there in front of you? Does he do that by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? He said, Jesus died for your sins. He was accursed under the law on a tree so that you can receive the gift of righteousness and be God's adopted children. And as a powerful guarantee of this, Paul says, he plants his Holy Spirit within you. That's the guarantee. Until you, until you spontaneously cry out, Abba, Father! That's how you know you're a son, a daughter of the living God. As a child of God filled with his spirit, 
You already have a share in His covenant. You already have it. And he goes on, you're made free in Christ, free of rituals and commandments and rites. Of course, what are you going to do with this newfound freedom? Now, if you've been really made alive by the very Spirit of God, he says, then you ought to live as if that Spirit of God is there inside of you, right? Live like you got the Spirit inside of you. Live like you have something and someone holy living inside of you. Live like you have someone, something pure living inside of you. And on and on. So let's look at this well-known portion of Paul's letter in Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 16. Galatians 5, and we'll read 16 through 25. Paul writes, Live by the Spirit, I say. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit. What the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not subject to the law. Now, the works of of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, though, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, Let us also be guided by the Spirit. May God bless to us this reading of his holy word. Amen. So Paul is saying you can can either live in the ways and the desires of your flesh or in the ways of the Holy Spirit. You can live to satisfy your own animal cravings or you can live to please God. There's not a middle way. There's no compromise that can effectively satisfy both sides. It's going to be either or. Every time you make a decision, it's like you're reaching a fork in the road. You know how it is when you're driving down the interstate and then you come to a Y in the interstate where a couple lanes peel off this way and a couple lanes peel off this way? What if you decide you can't decide and you decide to strike a compromise? You're going to wreck your car. In the same way, when you strike those compromises 
between the way of the flesh and the way of God and of the spirit, you're going to wreck your life. And you're going to wreck your faith. Now, on the one side, there are the works of the flesh. Now, this is a typical, what we call a vice catalog. Uh, This is one of those things that that Paul sort of learned from from the uh, Stoics. Stoics love to list all the vices over here and then all the virtues over here to encourage people to live by a nice virtuous life. And so Paul kind of uses that to make his gospel points. And this is a pretty typical sort of vice catalog, especially for Paul. And Paul gives us an offhand representative of the kinds of sins that we do when we're running after the flesh. There's various kinds of sexual sins. Uh, These refer to sex outside of marriage, to perversity, and to indecency. Then he's got a couple of religious sins like running after idols and other gods. And sorcery refers to what nowadays they like to call spiritistic channeling. Then there's social evils. You notice he's got a lot of these in here. I don't know if this is an indication of the you know, things that his churches had to deal with a lot, but things like hostility, anger, infighting, dissension, jealousy, party spirit, and so on. And then there's irresponsible living in substance abuse or frivolous carousing. Now this list isn't exhaustive. If you have some sins that aren't on the list, don't think you're off the hook, okay? You can can write them in on the margin. It's simply a representative sampling. He could have added other things. In other places, Paul did add other things. And you might have done some of these things at an earlier time in your life. I hope you're not still doing them. If you are, shame on you. But when you continue to give in to these inclinations, once you know Jesus and once you're filled with the Spirit, if you continue to give in to these inclinations, in effect, you're turning your back on the urgings of the Holy Spirit. You're denying Christ publicly by your actions. disqualifying yourself, Paul warns us, disqualifying yourself from the kingdom of God. Is it really worth it? Are these things really worth that? Now, in contrast to the works of the flesh, Paul lists Well, we would expect him then to list the works of the Spirit. That would be the good Stoic model. You'd have the works of the flesh, and they they like symmetry, right? The works of the flesh, and then you're going to have the works of the Spirit. These are the works of vices. These are the works of virtues. Paul doesn't go there where the flesh does this and the Spirit does that. In fact, in all of his letters... Paul never once speaks of the works of the Spirit. 
He never speaks of the works of the Spirit. Instead, yeah, well, those lying preachers in Galatia, they were all about the works of the Spirit, you know, circumcision and keeping the law. Instead, though, Paul names, what does Paul name? He calls them fruit of the Spirit. And that's an important distinction. If you, had, if you just had works of the Spirit, if you had a checklist of positive things to do, you could go down and check them off and feel pretty good about yourself. You know, I've got this, I've got that. Okay, I've done my religious duty. Jesus, you can let me into heaven. I did the list, checked it off. Doesn't work that way. Paul instead drives to the very heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. You know, it, not a checklist of things to do, but it's about a change of heart. A whole new set of impulses and attitudes that are shaped not by your own will and wants, but by the will of the Holy Spirit. They're the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit does this. Fruit of the Spirit will, it, these are things that the Holy Spirit will, will show evidence of within our hearts and in our actions, and you know the list. Uh, depending on which translation you memorized it from, there's things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, or uh, your generosity, faithfulness, self-control. This is also just a representative list. There are a lot of others that Paul could have named and does name in other lists, in other places, like, for example, like the fruit of righteousness that he mentions in Philippians 1. There's faith. Now, I don't mean saving faith, which is a gift, but the kind of praying faith that grows and deepens over time. Or like hope, like mercy, humility, persistence, integrity, courage, endurance, compassion, humor. Now, none of these are gifts of the Spirit. That is, they're not just handed you on a silver platter. Rather, all of them are new personality traits which, as the Holy, which the Holy Spirit can and will cultivate within your heart as you live in the Spirit and follow His subtle influences in your soul and listen and be focused on Him and what He's doing and where He's guiding you. That's what life in the Spirit looks like. Now, to get his point across to the broadest audience, Paul uses an agricultural image that all of his readers in the central Anatolian highlands could understand. Fruit. It was a, it's a fairly arid country, but it is one of the breadbaskets of the Roman Empire at that time. And so he describes fruit. Think of olives or figs or something. The seeds are planted in your soul. They take root in good soil. They grow slowly and steadily. And like any good fruit tree, you will require care, watering, fertilizing, and pruning. 
He doesn't develop all of that because all he has to do is say fruit and everybody knows in, in that area, they know what's involved in raising and growing fruit. Now, I'm not a gardener. I, my mother always said she, had, she did not have a, brown, a green thumb. She was born with a brown thumb. And everything she would take care of would wither up and die. I have inherited that from her. Plants, if they could, plants would run screaming whenever I come. So, since I'm not a gardener and can't really relate to growing fruit, I envision God as a hat maker. Take patience. Patience, for example, that's one of the fruit of the Spirit. How, again, I hardly need to ask, I'm sure, how many of you ever made the mistake of praying for patience? <laughs> and what happened? It seemed like all hell broke loose in your life, and you thought, okay, God's going to help me cope with this situation, and what happened? The situation got worse. And you swore to yourself, I will never, ever make that mistake again. Amen. Well, patience isn't just given to you, it is grown. And it only grows through adversity. Paul himself said in Romans 5, in the, that old King James Version treasured uh, translation, Tribulation worketh patience. I wish I had read that before I prayed for patience. So imagine God wants to increase your patience, which by the way he does, and he will find a problem that's just a little bigger than the patience you have. And then he's gonna soften you up a little bit and then he takes your little bit of patience and he starts to stretch it. And he'll stretch it this way and he'll stretch it that way until it's big enough to cover that problem. And then he peels it off and puts up the problem. And you think, oh, hallelujah. Now I have learned the lesson of patience. Thank God I have patience now. You know, I feel so free. I, anything, you know. And then what we don't realize he's doing, he's pulling down a bigger problem that's just a little bigger than that patience you were just so proud of having now. And he'll soften you up and he starts the process again. And he will do it again and again until your patience is big enough to cover any problem this life might throw at you. Your patience, you may not have realized that your patience started out toy-sized and by the time he finishes, you'll have adult-sized patience. How about love? 
How does God do that? Does he just give you love? No, he takes the little bit of love you have and he finds an unlovable person. You know, maybe your spouse. <laughs> that child. You know, or Mr. Wilson with his dentist from next door. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be really unlovable. It could just be a little bit irritating. Do any of you know someone who has just a few of those little irritating habits? Well, look in the mirror. <laughs> you'll find one. Look around in there, you'll find one. And God takes that little bit of love, he find, brings in an unlovable person or a person with some unlovable traits who's just a wee bit more than you, what you can emotionally handle on your own. And he's going to take that love and he's going to soften you up and then he's going to start tugging it this way and that way and stretching it. And Oh man, this is, and he's stretching and it's, and then some, suddenly you discover it's big enough to cover that person with all those irritations. Or most of them at least, till you find some new ones, you know, but and then you think, oh, I've learned the lesson of love, and you don't notice he's bringing down an even more unlovable person. There are even more irritations. Because you see, love only grows by loving the unlovable. The Spirit's joy only is stretched in joyless surroundings. The humor thrives best in a humorless land. Righteousness can only be stretched and matured when you are beset by persistent and accessible temptation. Humility is stretched by repeated painful self-discovery as God reveals to you who and what you really are on your own. Gentleness, kindness, all of the important spiritual qualities of the soul grow by being stretched over adverse circumstances again and again until they're at last big enough to cover any and all conditions. Churches grow in spiritual character by God stretching us as a group over ever greater issues and problems. You're in one of those stretching processes right now. I guess I am your wooden hat form, maybe. I don't know. But however, as we yield ourselves to the direction and working of the Holy Spirit within and around us, Individually and corporately as a church, we will grow in the grace of Christ and the wisdom of the Spirit. For the moment, said the author of Hebrews, we don't know who he was, but he says, for the moment all training is painful rather than pleasant. Later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That could have come from Paul. 
You see, life in the Holy Spirit is a process of maturing, of growing, of ripening, or of stretching as your Heavenly Father reshapes you to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. In His sacrificial love and humility, in His enduring faithfulness and His confident hope, in His self-humiliation and His cross, and ultimately, in his resurrection glorification. And one day, one day you will look back on your life from a heavenly perspective and realize that this whole time God was shaping not just any old hat, but a crown. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we don't like adversity and we will run away if we can. But we cannot and will not grow in your spirit unless we embrace it and look for your hand in it. You have a purpose. You're shaping us like Jesus Christ. You're shaping us by the Spirit. You're shaping us into something useful and ultimately something glorious. We yield ourselves individually as a body to you. Holy Spirit, come and teach us how to die with Christ, how to live in the Spirit Bear your fruit in our souls. And all we say and all we do, may others see Christ taking shape in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.